Hello, everybody, and welcome to Explain It To Me Like I'm a 10-Year-Old. Today, I am very lucky to have Julie Lithcott-Hames with me, New York Times bestselling author, former Stanford dean, and current Palo Alto City Council member. Julie first was a corporate lawyer. Finding herself unfulfilled, she left her job to become the Stanford freshman dean and noticed the effect that helicopter parenting was having on freshman students. She decided to write a book on parenting, how to raise an adult, and many more about parenting and her experiences. I'm so excited for our interview today. Hi, Julie. How are you? Charlie, I'm great. I have the privilege of being on a lot of people's podcasts, but I have never been more excited to be on a podcast than I am right now. Gosh, thank you. That that is that's an honor. Well, my first question for you today is how did you know that the path you were on at the start of your career wasn't the right path for you? Charlie, I had a feeling of discomfort, a pain in my stomach every Sunday afternoon at about 2 p.m. at the thought of having to go back into my law firm the next day. The work was interesting. The people were people I had camaraderie with. I was being mentored and trained. I was valued there. I was told I was good at the work. So it wasn't any of that. I just knew, my body knew, this isn't what I'm meant to do. Doesn't matter if you're good at it. You have to also feel it is your passion. It is your calling. It is something you love. And my body was telling me with physical pain that was really kind of dread, you know, we don't want to be doing this. Of course, it took me a long time to heed that signal from my own body. How did you kind of get the courage to leave this job as a lawyer, which is usually very, quote unquote, prestigious, uh, to go become a a dean at Stanford? Well, uh, I think it goes hand in hand with my first answer in the sense that it is, in my experience and listening to countless others in in this realm, often it is only when our bodies are falling apart that our brains are willing to say, okay, wait a minute, no matter how prestigious this is, no matter you know, the fact that it's a very lucrative career, my stomach hurts every week. Or I had a friend say my hair was falling out, you know, as a corporate lawyer or as an investment banker or you know, my blood pressure is high. Often it's only when our bodies are breaking down that we're able to find the justification for something we've wanted for far longer, you know? So it's that, I think that courage comes when we're feeling desperation or despair. And I think my work is in part about how can you make the right choice for yourself before your body is giving you that signal of physical pain. And as a dean at Stanford, how did you start to see this helplessness of kids that was brought on by helicopter parents? So if I may just let your listeners know how that jump happened, I'm going to tell it quickly. I wanted to leave corporate law. I wanted to help humans. That I went to be a lawyer because I, I, I went to law school to help humans lead better lives, but I found myself in corporate law by my own choice told myself I had to pay off my loans, needed the big salary. but And then that's the work that was really like leaving me with a stomach ache. So I was like, how do I get back to helping humans? And I was really falling out of love with law. But then I thought, okay, I, maybe I can help people at college, at a college up the road from me, Stanford. Maybe I can help students come to understand their own voice 
about what they want in their life for their work, for their identity, for all of their choice. Maybe I can help them on their path, uh, you know, deploying the lessons I had learned from the unhappiness I had experienced on my path. So I set out to get that work. And then I, I failed, actually. I tried to get work in higher education at Stanford, not once, not twice, not three times. On my fourth try, I was finally given the opportunity to be the interim dean of students at Stanford Law School. And then I worked for the president. And then I became the dean of freshmen. And so by the time I was then dean of freshmen, I had been an administrator for four years and had noticed the 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 trend of helicopter parenting in the late 90s into the early 2000s when it was new and funny that parents seemed to want to talk to professors on behalf of their student or they wanted to get involved in roommate disputes or they wanted they they wanted to see their child's homework before the child turned it in and all I could think was like yes they're your child and always will be but they could also be in the army right now and you wouldn't be able to hold their hand in the army, the way you are holding their hand at Stanford. And why is it? What's going on? And don't you want your young person to be capable? And don't you realize that the longer you hold their hand, the less capable they will be? And it was really my fierce feeling of advocacy for young adults. Like, no, 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 this is your life to figure out and there will be bumps and stumbles and pitfalls and that's normal and natural and good. And it's the only way you build a self. So how can we get your parents to back off just a little bit to to let you go off leash so that you can be the one ultimately to walk this path in life in accordance with your own values and your own dreams, your own sense of what you're good at and what you love? Well, when did you know that you had to write a book about this to really educate people? You know what? I wrote an op-ed, an essay in a newspaper in 2005 on the subject, and it was called, When Did Caring Become Control? Blame Boomers. I was good at writing short form. I was good at giving speeches. I didn't think I could write a book, Charlie. In fact, I'd been told much of my life that my writing was not very strong. I didn't, and and I think those mentors were right. I had some learning differences that I hadn't really sort of fully sorted out. And so the, the notion that I would be a person who would write a book was highly improbable. Well, 10 years later, How to Raise an Adult came out, but I would say it was born in 2005 with that op-ed. 2015, I finally published it. And it was, I, I left the university in 2012, went back to school to get a degree, a master's in creative writing to develop more skills, to develop also confidence that I could also to join the community of writers. So it was a, quite a lengthy process. I got the book deal in 20, I pitched the book concept in 2012. I got the deal in 2013. It took me two years to write it. Um, so 2015, it came out, but I had had that concern on the brain since 2005. Why are these parents failing to raise self-sufficient kids? Parents are, and I'm a parent, okay? My kids are older than you. My kids are newly 24 and about to be 22. And the irony here is I was very happy to tell Stanford parents and parents nationally why they needed to back off, why they needed to let their kid try and fail. It's the only way you really learn to do things is trying and failing and getting better at it. And so if a parent is always doing it uh, to sort of make it perfect today, the kid will never be able to do it tomorrow. The irony is 
Turns out I was overparenting my own kids. I was cutting my 10-year-old's meat, Charlie. And I don't know if you remember yourself at 10, but I hope and I'm pretty sure your parents were letting you use a knife and fork. I was just conveniently leaning over helpfully, like cutting my son's chicken. And that was my aha moment when I realized, oh, shoot, I'm cutting the meat of a 10-year-old. I'm not going to be able to let go of an 18-year-old when he goes off to college, if that's where he goes or, you know, or the workplace. Um, here's an effect what's happening. Um, why is it harmful? Um, although we achieve a short-term win for our kids when we rewrite their essay, go talk to their teacher about a difficult situation, intervene with a friend problem, make sure they don't miss a deadline. Like we solved it in the moment, but have deprived our kid of learning how to do it for the long term. And so there's this old adage, don't give a man a fish, teach a man to fish. If you give a person a fish to eat, they eat today. If you teach them how to fish, they can eat for a lifetime. And that's really what parenting, what good parenting is all about. Why? Because one day we'll be dead and gone. Humans die. It's a fact of life. And we're supposed to, as parents, try to ensure that we've taught our kid to do for themselves so that one day they can do it themselves. And not just when we're dead, but well before that. Why? Because humans get this feeling of delicious satisfaction when we solve our own situation. Even if it wasn't like when, it, you know, if our kid is, you know, if my kid right now who's in Europe, just graduated college, 21 years old, you know, is in four different countries in any given week. If my kid is like, oh no, I missed my train. And my instinct is hop on the internet, figure out when the next train is, you know, to Berlin or Vienna or whatever. And I solve it for her because I can with the internet. I've deprived my kid of the delicious buzz of the problem solving that she'll experience by missing the train, figuring out the next train, maybe having to detour to a different city. Like there's psychological satisfaction that comes from the solving of that problem. And we parents can't handle our kid experiencing the distress and the discomfort that happens before the kid figures out their way through. We've got to stop fearing our kids' fears and worries and anxieties and instead say, hey, kid, that sounds like a problem, but you know what? I think you can solve it. Big smile, walk away. That's how we empower our kids to thrive. Exactly. Well, well, I'm my, I'm curious, like it, it happened very suddenly, right? At, at one point, this kind of parenting style started. Yeah. Why is that? What what yeah. happened in, in good, America? It's a good question. Well, long before your birth um, in the 1980s, when I was actually in high school, um, parents were starting to raise kids differently. We got uh, we we uh, we started to be concerned about stranger danger. And instead of just I got to teach my kid how to be smart and safe out there, it became like my kid will never be alone. My kid can't be alone in a store. My kid can't be alone in a mall. My kid can't go on public transportation. So we sort of overblew that fear, decided we'll just never let them do anything rather than, you know, let's teach them how to be really watchful, mindful, and vigilant and safe. Um, we got really uh, uh, enamored of like, let's, sh you know, give them ribbons and trophies and certificates and awards for just being on the soccer team instead of for winning games. We'll just give you, we'll just always show up and cheer you on. There was sort of this, let's cheer you on, always protect you. Um, we'll, we'll bubble wrap your environment. This was all happening in the 80s. You'll like nobody wore seatbelts before the 80s, Charlie. But in the 80s, it was seatbelts, car seats, bike helmets, all of which kept us safe. 
And that was good. But then it led to this overreach, which was let's bubble wrap the edges of our coffee table and let's bubble wrap the edges of our counters so our kids never experience a bump. All of this was sort of this concerted effort to make sure we were on top of everything. It was really parents becoming so much more controlling and watchful. Obviously, kids need to be safe, but parents have decided the entire world is a, is a potential disaster zone for my kids, so I have to have my eye on them at all times. And that's not how you know you teach a person to be independent. There was something about the 1980s, the mid-1980s, when the first play date actually was born. In my day, Charlie, when I was your age, and younger, when I wanted to play, I w- left my house and went down the street and looked for the bicycles because that meant that's where the kids were. And then the play date was born in 1984. It was like parents are going to can't trust kids to be able to find playmates anymore. We need to arrange it, not only put it in the calendar, but tell them what to play, how to play. If they're not getting along, intervene. If they look bored, tell them what to do differently. Like kids need to be a little bit bored because that's how they invent amazing plays or amazing games or amazing puzzles or whatever like boredom is sort of the catalyst for the next interesting idea and when we're so worried that our kids aren't seemingly constantly enriched in every moment we deprive them of the joy of being the person who designed themselves a way out of boredom parents are controlling their kids just in the house what they do what classes they take what schools they go to they're also doing that a bit in careers And American culture has shifted into pressuring kids and making sure they go to a prestigious college and become a very highly paid professional. Why had that shift happened? You know, there's a perception that you have to go to a certain college and have a certain major in order to be successful in life. And it's just blatantly false. (laughs) There's just so much evidence that people lead successful, happy lives regardless of whether they went to college. If they did go to a college, didn't have to be a brand name college. So I think, frankly, the brand name college has become sort of like what the cool kids are doing. I want my kid to do the cool thing. The brand name is cool. I want my kid there. I feel better about myself and my family if I can say, oh, my kid's at fill in the blank famous university. Um, So I think, frankly, it boils down to a parent's ego. You know, this is what's, you know, seemingly the cool, shiny object, this college. I need to feel good about myself and I will feel good about myself if my kid is at the cool, shiny college. Um, I think, therefore, the antidote is if we parents could get a handle on our own insecurities, like, why do I feel so incomplete in my life that I only feel good if I can say, oh, my kid is at this school, my kid is studying this thing, right? It's not, they will say, oh, they have to have a degree from there to have a decent life. It's just not true. The evidence is the opposite. So I think we have to be better at actually being really compassionate with parents and saying, what are you so afraid of? You know, what is it that's lacking in your life such that you're treating your kid like a racehorse who has to run the Kentucky Derby and you can bring the trophy home? Like, what is that about? There's so much more available in life than a degree from a so-called brand name college. How do you how does how would a kid deal with this pressure and do actually what they want in the world? Charlie, you tell me, man. I mean, you're in it. I'll tell you, I wrote a book. I did a TED talk. I'm, you know, every time I get invited to do an assembly with middle schoolers at a school or high schoolers or college students, I am the stranger who shows up and says bluntly, hey, kid, this is your life. No one else's. 
Don't you let them make you into a, whatever they need you to be. I'm here on behalf of all the grownups saying it's yours, your life. You get to choose whether it's what you study, accepting the identities you carry, deciding with whom to be in relationship, deciding what work to do. This is your one wild and precious life, kid, and I'm rooting for you. And here I'm quoting the late poet Mary Oliver, who wrote in one of her poems, The Summer Day, tell me, what is it you plan to do with your one wild and precious life? I'm here deliberately articulating those words, hoping I've said enough that the kids are like, you know what? This lady gets it. She gets the pressure. She gets how much it sucks to be forced to go into some field that other people think is valid, that you seem to have some aptitude for, but you know you don't love. Like There are too many kids in, in our community right here, Charlie and elsewhere, who are like little robots being programmed by someone else to execute their life. And it's sad. Doesn't matter how smart you are, if you are being pressured to be or do a thing that your soul knows is not what you want to be doing, you will be a very, very unhappy person. And I'm trying to protect kids from that future. You've had truly like such a fascinating career doing so many different things. How did you find that path to go into helping people and doing that? And, and how would you advise other kids find their path? Look, I found the path. I was unhappy. I had to ask myself, why are you unhappy? You've been given so much opportunity. You're privileged. Your parents loved you and educated you well. You know, and yet you've chosen badly for yourself, Julie. Well paid, but sad. You know, that that was me at 26 years old. Um, and I, in that moment of unhappiness, I asked myself, what are you good at? What do you love? See if you can tease that out from yourself, Julie. I was trying to listen for my own voice instead of listening to all the noise of expectations of family and society. And I think when we are miserable, that's when we sort of have the courage to honor our own, to listen for our own voice. And then we have got to find the courage to honor it. So, you know, that's what I tell young people, like go for a, go for a walk in nature, unplugged, no music, no social media, no, don't put your phone away. Just go out in nature and ask yourself, what would I do? If it was just up to me, what would I do if they loved me no matter what? What would I do if I loved myself enough not to care or worry about what other people thought? Go for a walk in nature, go stand under a hot shower, uh, sit in a quiet, comfortable chair with a journal. These are all places and locations and ways of being that where you can be alone with yourself. You're trying to teach yourself that you can be trusted. So you're asking yourself, what would I do if it was just up to me? Then you have to shut up, be quiet and listen for what your soul, your spirit, your mind, your brain, whatever you think is like animating that interior voice. Ask the question in one of these venues and listen for the answer and then tell yourself, all right, I'm paying attention. I'm going to, I'm paying attention. I'm listening. I'm going to try to really center that thing. And it might be hard because I'm 12 or I'm 14 or I'm 17 and I'm still living with folks who want me to be a doctor or an engineer, but I really know I want to be a wilderness naturalist. And I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to trust that one day I'm going to be the person who will say, you know what, folks, I love you. And I know you love me, but this is what I need to do. And I hope you can love me. Even if you don't understand it, that's the journey that so many kids today need to be on. And you 
had this next evolution of your career has been as a Palo Alto City Council person. Why did you first decide to run for the Palo Alto City Council? You know what, Charlie? I have a loud voice, big mouth, and I'm a very progressive liberal politically. And there were a lot of people in my city for years who were saying, Julie, you know, we'd like you to run for city council because we need more people with your particular perspective on this council. And I kept saying no. I kept saying, thank you. I'm flattered, but I can't. I'm self-employed. I write books. You know, I I can't just, you know, drop that and serve because it's a lot of work. And then finally, I was persuaded that the lack of affordable housing, not just our population of unhoused people who live on the streets and in their cars, but people who have more resources than they do and yet can't afford an apartment. Our teachers can't afford to live remotely near where they work. Our young adults grow up here and can't afford to and do all the right things, air quotes, right things, graduate high school, go to college, get a job, can't afford a one bedroom apartment. Too many folks who have, you know, they've done everything we ask. They're hardworking the, the the macroeconomics have gotten out of control. They can't afford a bed and a shelter. And that's, you know, society has has failed a whole swath of people. And so I ran for them. I, and now I'm going to tear up like I ran for them. I think more of us need to be advocating for the fact that a proper functioning city needs people doing all the jobs, teachers and plumbers and grocery workers and bankers and lawyers and doctors and engineers and gardeners, like everybody, a proper community makes uh, it possible for all to live. So that's why I ran, uh, rooting for humans to thrive um, right here in Palo Alto. And through all of your work, what do you want your legacy to be? Oh, my God. Well, you know, I said I'm a parent. So part of the legacy is, please let me have raised humans who can go out into the world and be useful and kind in the lives of other humans. Um, professionally, I hope that across my work, whether it's a book or a talk or a conversation that I'm a part of, I hope people will say, she respected me. I felt safe and seen in her presence. I felt drawn to be more of myself because Julie valued me as I am. So many of us know we're not valued as we are. And this is where my identity as a Black, biracial, queer, bisexual person, all of those identities are very outside the lines of what many humans think is acceptable. I think I have a lot of compassion for humans because I was othered when I was your age and older, told you don't belong, your kind isn't good enough, we don't accept you the way you are, or even just what are you? I know that it hurts to be on the outside. And I think that gives me a lot of compassion for all humans. And I hope in the end, that's the legacy. You know, she loved humans and it showed. Wow. Thank you so much for being here. My final question for you today is what is your advice to a young person who doesn't yet know their purpose? I would say, take your time. It will come. Be curious. Be curious about, ask yourself, here it is summertime. Ask yourself, look back on the last school year, which class lit you up? Which activity 
lit you up, by which I mean you were excited to do it. It was work, but you were there. You loved it. You leveled up, right? These are clues from your own life about what you might really be good at and want to do with your life. And don't discount it. Don't say, yeah, but it was just theater. No, like the world needs theater artists. Maybe you'll be one of them, right? Maybe it was robotics and maybe you weren't like the winning robot creator, but you just loved it so much. I would say do more of that. The things that light you up, continue to work at that. Find the mentors, find the opportunities, work hard. You know, those, the things that light you up are the already in your young years. Those, those are the clues that this might be your passion, your purpose and what you will do with your life. Julie, thank you so much for being here. I really, really enjoyed speaking with you today. Carly, you know what? Rich Roll ain't got nothing on you, kid. <laughs> you do a tremendous job of preparing. You have a great way of interviewing. I really appreciate your style. And thanks. It was an honor to be on your podcast. And thanks to everyone who listened. Thank you. It was really honor.